Hello and welcome to Will Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the Poop Detective. And I'm Jen, the Magical Mapper. This is Episode 5, What Makes the Songbirds Sing? In this episode, we will learn more about songbirds and umbrellas, the story of sage-grouse conservation, and how the Audubon Society's Sagebrush Songbird Survey Program uses GIS, and another opportunity for you to count birds. For this episode, we connected with Christy Norman, Program Director of the Audubon Society, for information, as well as our usual interweb research. We also looked at the Sagegrouse Initiative's website for a lot of study facts and figures, and I depended pretty heavily on an article from High Country News, the Endangered Species Act's biggest experiment. Uh, Links available on our website. Interesting. I want to read it already. Right. It's pretty good. So before we get started with this episode, I do have a correction. So our Facebook page is actually www.facebook.com slash will we make it out alive. We've been saying it wrong on every episode so far. I can't believe Amy doesn't even know our own Facebook page. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Also, what does a cat call a hummingbird? I don't know. Fast food. Oh my goodness. I hope you like bad jokes because you might be hearing a few of them this episode. By bad jokes, do you mean dad jokes? I might. Oh. So, imagine the dry, low, shrub-step environment around the Columbia River Basin, stretching south into Oregon and California and east into Colorado and stuff. And stuff. Is that a... It's like Idaho and Wyoming and Montana places over there probably utah too okay and stuff there's 11 of them to be more clear or anyways (laughs) because birds are unique to their ecosystems understanding their distribution and abundance can also offer insight into overall health of a specific environment Hmm. the columbia basin is part of the sagebrush ecosystem today we're going to discuss conservation of sagebrush obligate species oh Whack fact, sagebrush obligate species are dependent on the sagebrush ecosystem either because they eat sagebrush and or they need the sagebrush for other things like nesting. Some sagebrush obligate species include mule deer, antelope, pygmy rabbits, which sound adorable. They are sage grouse and sagebrush songbirds, such as sagebrush sparrows sage slashers and brewer sparrows and just to be clear a sage grouse is actually a sagebrush songbird also oh yeah one of the keystone species that has had a lot of conservation dollars directed at it is the sage grouse they are the largest and most well-known of sagebrush songbirds They are also known for their magical mating dance, where the males, with their tails erect and their wings held out, and then they have these two yellow balls, they call them air sacs, that thrust out of their neck feathers in hopes of attracting a lucky female. That sounds magical. It is. (laughs) Links to video on our website. Oh. What do you call two birds in love? Oh, God. Tweet hearts. It's amazing, Jen. (laughs) really amazing you're welcome i'm missing cat facts right now (laughs) speaking of which whack fact a group of grouse is called a brood or a confifi i mean uh convey 
or a lek. Interesting. So also, the sage grouse communally mate in a specific breeding area, which is called a lek. Probably part of the reason why a group of them is called a lek. Typically, they mate between April and May, and they nest below the sagebrush, where they usually lay between six and nine eggs, and those are incubated for about 27, 28 days. Pretty much as soon as the chicks hatch from the eggs, they leave the nest. So it's a short period, but very critical period in their reproductive cycle. What does it mean that they communally mate? It means they all get together in one spot. So those leks are these, like every year they come back to the same communal mating grounds and the males do their fancy dancing and they like um, will fight with other males Mm -hmm. to show off to the females which one is, you know, the best breeding bird so they don't necessarily mate one-on-one no they do but they all come to the same spot right okay got it so why are these species at risk well over the past two centuries fire suppression historic overgrazing and favorable climate conditions have led to the spread of conifers in sagebrush habitat More recent threats include habitat destruction, fragmentation, and encroachment related to residential, commercial, and natural resource development. Livestock grazing might also have some indirect impacts on the vegetation density, which then leads to increased predation because there's less coverage during the nesting period. Hmm. Many species are at risk from human encroachment on their habitat, but the sage grouse like their specific mating and nesting locations without trees towering overhead where raptors can perch, and they don't like human disturbances near their nesting areas either. Oh, so they don't like it when you come around? Apparently not. Am I a raptor? You're a human disturbance. Mm. Uh Um, Although, according to High Country News, they're loyal to the places they know, even when those areas are no longer suitable to them. So one bird was found to nest in the same spot every year, even as an oil well was developed nearby. Only when a well pad showed up in her nesting location did she move, but only about 30 feet. Wow, that's crazy. Sounds stubborn. It also seems like that would be a lot of human disturbance. So that's it's like they're that's, sticklers for the same spot. but That's a very good point. Interesting. Yeah. So because of those particularities... Um, the sage grouse are a good canary in the coal mine, so to speak. They are a good indicator species for the overall health of the sagebrush ecosystems and the 350 other species that are dependent upon them. Wow. They also have a huge specific ecosystem range, which complicates the protection of the species. The habitat stretches across 173 million acres of arid sagebrush steppe in the American West, And it has never been listed as endangered, even though the population is now thought to be less than 10% of what it was at the end of the 19th century. The sage grouse's story is a really pretty interesting one. I didn't know about it that much when I started researching this, and um, it became really exciting. I hope I'm able to share the story in an interesting enough way to keep it intriguing for you guys as well. Me too. Because otherwise you're going to fall asleep over there. Yeah, keep it interesting. Whoa. So, even though they had been proposed to be on the endangered species list at least eight times since 1998, they've never been listed. Wow. But again, like I was just saying, not because the bird doesn't deserve it. I mean, they once had a population of like 16 million, and that number has been as low as 400,000 now. Wow. 
And in this one case, it appears that maybe not being listed as an endangered species may have actually resulted in more conservation than if it had been listed. Well, that's really interesting. Right. So here's a couple of things. So had the bird been placed on the endangered species list, it would have resulted in those dreaded land use restrictions, which often put the animals at odds with humans that want to use those resources or the habitat that's critical to the species. Now, under the Endangered Species Act, the landowners are not allowed to harm the species, but it does not require any conservation effort to restore the population. Hmm. Also, according to High Country News, in 1995, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies convened the states with grouse populations and nudged them into action. They began creating conservation strategies, took some bottom-up approach, first developing local working groups, then rolling those results up into statewide plans. In 2010, it was determined that the species was warranted for listing as endangered, but Fish and Wildlife decided not to officially list the species at that time and instead set a court date to make its final determination as to whether or not to list. Oh, so is it Fish and Wildlife that lists species then? Correct. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. Learned something already. Yes, and and people can submit if they think a species is having an issue. So actually, in this case, there was, uh, I think, wildlife biologists or wildlife management scientists in Colorado and Idaho in the early 90s who had identified that these populations were significantly dwindling in their areas. And so they're the ones that actually brought the data forward to get everybody to start talking about what was going on here. Oh, Interesting. And they are able to do that because they're a lot more nimble than the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department. Right. And so in this case, it was that threat of an Endangered Species Act listing that drove the state and federal officials and then the Western landowners to negotiate a historic compromise in 2015. Under that agreement, states and landowners and energy companies agreed to protect key bird habitat, and the federal government agreed not to list the bird which might have forced far more drastic restrictions on development. The Department of Interior and the Department of Agriculture kicked their efforts into high gear, including a comprehensive strategy to manage BLM and Forest Service lands closely with the states. The centerpiece of the federal effort came out in 2015 when the agencies unveiled 14 near-final plans to usher in much more stringent protections than previously existed on 66 million acres of federal growth habitat. Wow. Yeah, and then, so, as of 2015, the initiative and its partners had invested about $425 million in conservation projects wow. that included um, involving 1,200 landowners. So this actually probably had a much greater reach than the endangered species listing could have achieved because they, they actually got all this conservation versus... The other would have just stopped additional development from occurring or whatever. And most existing land uses were all grandfathered in or allowed to stay. They just couldn't expand their footprint and stuff right. like that. So participants receive a compliance check actually once every three to five years. And they found so far that most are following their conservation plans. No, oh, that's, that's great. And the stats from all of this combined efforts are pretty impressive. They have 400,000 acres of important grouse range that have been cleared of encroaching conifers, which provide perches for predators and crowd out the sagebrush. Mm. And that's also beneficial to songbirds, which we'll talk about a little bit more Ooh. in a minute. 
ranchers now maintain taller grass on 2.6 million acres. And that, the initiative says, bumped up nesting success by 10%. At least 500 miles of fencing have been removed or marked, um, reducing often fatal collisions with wires by more than 80%. And more than 450,000 acres have been placed into conservation easements permanently protecting most of them from subdivision and wind farms and substantially reducing the threat of oil and gas development. That's really interesting. So wind farms bother them too. Yes. I didn't read more about that, so I don't know anything about that really, except for the birds. Right. One of our podcast episodes is how wind farms kill birds. It will be. (laughs) Stay tuned. Anyways, under the Endangered Species Act, landowners can enter into these conservation agreements with assurances that if they implement certain conservation measures, they're then protected from further restrictions if that species is listed. So basically, they get 30 years of certainty if the bird is listed that what they've already done and agreed to do in their conservation plan will be sufficient and they don't have to do any more. So there's actually a benefit for people to kind of sign on early versus waiting for the listing. And then it will be whatever the restrictions are at that point in time. That's kind of a great idea. Like I said, I mean, it's really kind of a cool story that, you know, it's, it's how the species, even though it probably could and should be listed, Mm -hmm. never has been, but there's been this like huge federal state, local organization collaborative approach at Mm -hmm. trying to manage for the sage grouse which is really kind of managing the sagebrush ecosystem which also has benefits to other species more on that coming up so soon (laughs) well and it's all voluntary it sounds like so correct that's always a better way to go right can based off of all of these positive efforts in 2015 u.s fish and wildlife decided that listing the sage grouse on the endangered species list was unwarranted and they stated that the determination relied on the effective implementation of federal and state land use plans and increased efforts to control invasive species and wildfire in the great basin success in restoring the health of the sagebrush ecosystem will also require the continued commitment of private landowners and industry and conservation organizations to monitor and adapt conservation work to improve sagebrush health On July 19, 2018, the administration proposed to limit the power of the Endangered Species Act in several ways. For instance, by allowing regulators to consider the economic impacts of listing a particular species before deciding whether or not to list, as opposed to relying solely on the relevant science. And then, on December 8, 2018, the administration released detailed plans to roll back protections for the greater sage grouse by opening up areas to development that have been set aside for the birds. This is critical habitat that was set aside for the birds, which they claim is part of a broader effort to open up Western public lands to development, particularly for energy, and so that the states can have more control. So, and in response to that, uh, Mark Rupp of the Environmental Defense Fund stated that This move is simply short-sighted. A bipartisan coalition of Western governors, industries, ranchers, and conservationists came together with the federal government years ago 
in an unprecedented effort to protect sage grouse habitat and keep the bird from being listed under the Endangered Species Act, an outcome everyone hoped to avoid. Ironically, what the Trump administration is proposing puts the sage grouse on the path towards listing. And then he added that Westerners know that energy development and conservation can coexist. Just last week, new polling, link on our website, reaffirmed Wyomingites. That's right, Wyomingites. That's what they're called, apparently. Interesting. Interest in preserving the sage grouse plans. Women and men, old and young, hunters and anglers, all wanted to maintain the sage grouse plans, expressly opposing reopening these lands to oil and gas production. Good for them. Right? So then, the sage grouse is slated for reevaluation under the Endangered Species Act in 2020. But we'll see what happens under the current circumstances. Oh, well, I think that calls for a joke. Or 20. How do you know if you're a birder? I don't know. Well, you might be a birder if you've ever faked your own death to attract vultures. Because you want to see the birds, see the vultures. Okay. Wow. Did you literally make that one up? No. (laughs) You found that joke for real? Wow. So bad. Unbelievable. Okay, let's talk about happier things. Okay, great. Good. Let's talk about umbrellas. Yay! And how you need them when you're in the sagebrush ecosystem. Yes, because it's way too sunny out there. Oh, that would be a good time to talk about your parasol. Uh, Well, I think parasol should come back in style because I don't like the sun. The sun does not like me. It's it's all true. I can confirm this. I need an umbrella to keep it away. So that, I guess, is a legitimate use for an umbrella Mm -hmm. in the sage. But we're actually going to talk about umbrellas in a slightly different way today. Okay. As umbrella species. Ooh. You can't see my hands right now, but they're <laughs> popping out like a little umbrella. So biologists call the sage grouse an umbrella species. And basically they look at it that they're conserving the area that the sage grouse needs. And there's also a lot of birds and other animals that benefit from the conservation and restoration work that's being accomplished in the name of the sage grouse. So um, from the pygmy rabbits, they are so cute, and sage sparrows to mule deer, elk, and pronghorn, all these animals take shelter under the umbrella. Ooh, like me. Yes, just like you. So there's more than 350 species of sagebrush obligate plants and animals now identified as species of conservation concern. That's sad. I thought we were going to talk about happy stuff. Well, we are talking about happy stuff. Okay. It's just we have to talk about the unhappy stuff to show how happy the semi-happy stuff is. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, basically, some of the things I've found so far is that policies and actions that benefit the grouse also overlap with high abundance areas for sagebrush songbirds. So that suggests that the benefits are also being realized by these kind of lesser well-known species. For example, in the Great Basin, 85% of conifer removal projects, which result in restored sagebrush habitat, are also known to benefit brewer sparrows, who happen to coincide in a high abundance with the sage 
Wyoming's land protection strategy for sage grouse also helps reduce habitat fragmentation for half of the state's largest population of sagebrush sparrow and the sage thrasher. Hmm. These analyses extend our understanding of the sage grouse umbrella for songbirds and provide tools to help target and integrate community-level benefits of conservation. Natural Resources Conservation Science leads the Sage Grouse Initiative. It was launched to help ranchers protect sage grouse habitat. Part of the science behind the Sage Grouse Initiative is to keep improving management to make sure that individual needs within those habitats for other species are met at the same time. For example, sage sparrows need large continuous sagebrush stands for nesting, while brewer sparrows rely on scattered shrub and short grass. Sage thrashers nest in tall, dense sagebrush with bare ground nearby. Interesting. Whack fact! The brewer sparrow is an amazing singer and arguably one of the most musical and complex in the bird world. Learn more on our website where we will link to their song. Mm. Some of the things that they were also able to conclude through the work of the Sage Grouse Initiative um, was that conservation easements that were acquired for the Sage Grouse protection doubled the winter mule deer migration habitat. Oh, wow. And in Oregon, they found that removing juniper that was encroaching on the sage-grouse habitat increased sagebrush songbirds between 50 and 80%. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Why do owls get invited to parties? Because they're so wise and old, and they'll make sure nobody does anything inappropriate, and their name is Jen. Rude. <laughs> no, it's because they're a hoot. <laughs> Sounds like something you'd also say about yourself. <laughs> According to the Sage Grouse Initiative website, they wanted to better understand the effects of sage grouse conservation on sagebrush songbirds. So, first the researchers created sagebrush songbird abundance map with climate and habitat conditions. Ooh, sounds like they might have used the union tool in GIS. Listen to episode four for more information on that. Hmm. So from that, they found the abundance of each songbird doubled when sagebrush covered 40% or more of the landscape. Hmm. Unfortunately, they were also able to determine that fewer than 25% of the sample sites exceeded that 40% threshold. So then the scientists compared patterns of songbird abundance with the distribution of sage-grouse leks, or those mating grounds. Near large leks, which support 50% of the known grouse populations, abundance was 15% higher for brewer sparrows, 13% for sagebrush sparrows, and 19% for sage thrashers. Hmm. Third, they looked at how the sagebrush songbirds may benefit from sage grouse conservation actions taking place in 11 western states, and they found that targeted conservation efforts for sage grouse also provided significant conservation benefits for those songbird species. These new songbird maps extended the understanding of how sage grouse conservation umbrella is working to benefit a host of other sagebrush wildlife. Plus, the maps help partners, managers, and landowners target future conservation projects so that they will generate the most return on investment for the sagebrush community as a whole. That's why I love maps. They just answer so many questions. Mm -hmm. So, then starting about in 2013, in eastern Washington... 
eight National Audubon Society chapters were trying to identify a project that they could all work together on with the Washington State National Audubon Society. One of the issues is that these chapters cover half of the state's landscape, and there's just not a lot of people that live there. For example, the North Central chapter is comprised of four counties, approximately the size of Belgium. Wow. So the project that they came up with was to do a sagebrush songbird survey project. What is the goal of the sagebrush songbird survey? The goal is to verify the accuracy of the GIS mapping efforts and species models being produced at the eco-region and multi-state level, which are theoretical and based on key habitat conditions. As we discussed in episode four. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then they also are trying to track distribution of the songbirds in eastern Washington. Um, They're also trying to provide critical information to aid in the conservation of these birds. Jen will tell us a little bit more about how they worked with Esri to deliver powerful tools to citizen science for data collection. One last note before we move on to that. That is, will the sage grouse, as a species, make it out alive? Maybe, but only if the current administration stops meddling with progress. Uh, That reminds me of a joke. Why did the chicken cross the road, roll in the mud, and cross back? Uh, dirty bird. He was a dirty double crosser. Oh. Okay. Thank you for those amazing jokes, Jen. You're welcome. For the GIS section today, I don't have a specific tool to highlight, but I wanted to explain many of the ways GIS was used in the Audubon Society's Sagebrush Songbird Survey Project. This project is a partnership between the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Audubon Society. For the GIS tools, the National Audubon Society and ESRI joined together to create tools and apps that both staff and volunteers could use. The tools are easy and simple. This is one of the first ESRI Audubon projects and lessons learned will be applied in the future to make these kinds of tools available on more projects and to make them even easier to use. They used GIS in several aspects of the project from start to finish, with everything the Audubon Society does being done in AGOL, which is ArcGIS Online. AGOL, as I like to call it. Uh, That's because you're weird. (laughs) Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife staff use more robust desktop GIS software on their end. Like ArcMap or ArcPro? Yes. The GIS process starts with Fish and Wildlife, who created a grid of four square kilometer cells, not four cells, but many cells that are four square kilometers in size. Good clarification point there. Across the Columbia Plateau in eastern Washington. From this grid, over 500 potential survey cells were identified on public lands, that had the right habitat conditions for these sagebrush songbird species being surveyed. Wow. (laughs) Outstanding. This is such a tongue twister. This whole episode. This whole episode. And the Audubon Society takes it from there. Volunteers with special training in AGOL, which is ArcGIS Online, for those of you who were sleeping about 30 seconds ago like Amy. (laughs) I even said Agle, so again, Jen, you always try to call me out when I'm sleeping when I'm so clearly paying attention. Um, So they then analyzed the cells for the best point within each cell to survey based on the best sagebrush habitat in each cell. 
Chapter volunteers then analyze the potential survey sites for accessibility. So the sites are often between a quarter and three quarters of a mile from a road. So they use other GIS layers, such as a road layer, to find roads that have enough space for parking. And they create a layer of parking points in ArcGIS Online where they think it's safe to park. Um, and they also generate draft driving directions to each parking point. Wow, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Especially that volunteers are doing all of that. Yes. Yeah. So volunteers then scout the sites, making sure that the parking is actually safe and that they can actually hike in to the identified survey point within each site. They also make sure the habitat characteristics are appropriate for sagebrush songbirds. Whack fact from Christy Norman. Ooh. Just because the ArcGIS map says there is a road does not mean that it's really there. What looks like a road on the GIS layer can be a cow trail, a four-wheel drive only, underwater in spring, which is the survey season for them, or show up as a public road only to have a locked gate when scouting the site and the route to it. That's true. Don't rely 100% on a GIS. So once they've selected the final survey points, they use ArcGIS to create the survey points and post those on eBird, which is the largest bird database in the world, so that the bird data is publicly available. That's right. That means you too can go to eBird and get whatever kind of bird data your little heart desires. And you can add your own information, not only for this project, but for lots of other projects too. Yeah, so GIS is used to match volunteers to survey locations near where they live. Volunteers also use GIS to navigate to the survey locations. The project started with the ArcGIS web platform, but they've moved to the app because it gives them more screen space to do their assessments. The ArcGIS online group, the Sagebrush Songbird Survey, is by invitation only, and the GIS layers and information can only be seen by participants. This is to safeguard personal information such as the Audubon members' home locations, which are used for matching volunteers to the survey sites near them. Some of the survey sites are on public lands that are leased, mostly grazing leases from the Washington Department of Natural Resources, and the Audubon Society contacts those lessees and stores their info in ArcGIS Online as well. So, of course, that info is confidential too. They contact lessees as a courtesy and for the volunteers' safety. Because people in the country usually know every single car and truck that drives the back roads. The ranching lessees have been welcoming to volunteer scientists, often helping with driving or hiking tips for the sites. So this year is the last year of the survey. And volunteers are also surveying private lands to help reach a broader geographic distribution of survey sites. The private lands may be owned by a land trust or may be part of Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife's Private Lands Hunting Opportunities Program, which is called the PLHO. And PLHO is a program in which the Washington Fish and Wildlife pays an agricultural producer, which is a farmer or rancher, to provide hunting access to a specific portion of their land in the fall. Many of these farmers and ranchers have agreed to survey on the PLHO parcel in the spring, the birds that they're surveying have migrated south by the hunting season, so it, it's not a conflict. 
This year, Fish and Wildlife has also created a customized ArcGIS collector app for volunteers to collect and report data that cannot be public. So everything that they survey on private lands and the PLHO program properties. So this data, um, instead of going into eBird, it will go into Washington State's WDFW Priority Habitat and Species Database after it's vetted for accuracy. Huh, so that means they won't be sharing that information? Correct. The information found on private properties will remain private, but everything on public lands will go into eBird for anyone to access. Whack fact from Christy Norman. No rest for the weary. Every year the technology changes, improves, and they have to retrain their volunteers. Digital adaptation is part of the community volunteer legacy now. Not just the Esri platform, but GPS and eBird updates too. It is worth it though because the result is improved survey protocol adherence and quality data. Yep, that's right. So what do you think? Do you want to be part of the final season of this survey project? Woohoo! Jen and I are thinking about doing it. Yeah, well, good news. The Audubon Society is welcoming volunteers. They need more than 125 volunteers in the field for this final season to complete the survey. They anticipate surveying 80 sites in rural and remote eastern Washington this year. Volunteers will visit their site once each in mid to late April, mid-May, and early June to conduct early morning bird surveys. Up to four volunteers are allowed at each site, so you don't have to perform a survey alone if you're not comfortable with going out by yourself. Surveying each site three times for birds ensures that all species using the site are counted. If you want to volunteer, there are a few basic requirements. You have to have transportation. These places are out in kind of the back country, so you have to have a vehicle that'll get you there. Do you need four-wheel drive vehicle? Um, it didn't specify that, and I don't believe so. But it probably kind of depends on the site to some degree, right. I would guess. I would, I would guess. You also have to have good hearing and eyesight. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you are identifying birds. So. I guess I can't go out with you then. <laughs> huh. Funny. You have to have the ability and or training to identify breeding birds in the area by sight and sound. So knowledge of bird songs is important because most birds counted on these surveys are singing males. So you have to have the ability to walk um, between half a mile and a mile across country in the shrub step environment. And volunteers have to complete a visual and oral bird identification, eBird data entry, GPS usage, and field protocol training to become familiar with techniques and forms. Volunteers must also be willing to stay overnight in eastern Washington in order to arrive on site for that early survey window, 6 to 9 a.m. That's right. You need to be a morning person for this volunteer opportunity. So I guess that rules me out. That's not what she said the other day when we were talking about it. Well, volunteers aren't at their site for three hours. But you need to plan to arrive at the parking area within that time frame, hike to the site while surveying, survey at the site for 10 minutes, and then survey while hiking back to the car. So all of this needs to be completed within that time frame and needs to be completed before 9 o'clock in the morning. If you think this volunteer opportunity is a fit for you, you must attend training first. 
Training is in early to mid-March in the Puget Sound region and early April in eastern Washington. You can find training dates and locations on the PAGES website, which of course we'll link to. And you need to RSVP to the organizer to sign up. And there's a different organizer for each training. At the training, you'll meet fellow volunteers and program leaders, learn or refresh your bird identification skills, practice using their field survey protocol, and reserve your 2019 survey sites. The volunteers do sometimes encounter exciting or dangerous conditions, such as a range fire. Here's a story from one survey leader, Kathy Criddle, from May of 2016. Blowing our own horn, Jan, Chris, and I went out to the Hualuki slope this morning to do a couple of surveys. There was rain and it was way too windy, but we decided to check out the site anyway. On the way back, we had a spectacular lightning bolt flash in front of us. Pretty cool until we realized the refuge was on fire. So we called it in and watched until the fire guys from various places came out. I just found out that thanks to us calling it in so fast, they were able to put it out and only three to five acres of beautiful sagebrush burned. Anyway, sagebrush songbird survey volunteers, you never know when you might be the one who gets to save the sagebrush habitat and apparently be prepared for fires. Cheers all! So if you want more information, the program website has training resources, field protocol, and other information so you can get more informed on what you're signing up for before committing. Again, we'll link to that on our website and in the show notes. Also, if you're a teacher, you can check out the Sagebrush curriculum, which was developed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, on link on our website. We asked Christy Norman if the Sagebrush Step of Eastern Washington was a good place to hide out during a zombie apocalypse. She said, It's good, as long as you don't need much water, love a starry night, and are short enough to hang out in the shade of the sagebrush in the summer heat. The rocks are pretty rough, so you need an unlimited number of super-duper hiking boots or perhaps a hoof adaptation. In the event of a catastrophic wildland fire, wings would be helpful to fly away. Well, we've come to the end of Episode 5. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you had fun and maybe even learned something. I know I did. Today, we talked about sagebrush songbirds, including the sage grouse and other umbrella species, how the Audubon Society's Sagebrush Songbird Survey Program uses GIS, and how you can become a volunteer for their final year of the survey, and whether Eastern Washington's Sagebrush Step is a good place to hide out in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Amy, why did the bird fly into the library? Mm, No. He was looking for bookworms. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Please join us for our next episode when I talk about how I like to get my coworkers into pokey, stingy, buzzy situations. Otherwise known as another day in pollinator paradise. (laughs) That's right. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com slash willwemakeitoutalive. If you have any corrections, 
or have any cool stories you'd like us to share, please contact us at outolifepodcast at gmail.com. And will we make it out alive? Thank you for joining us. Now we must say goodbye. Goodbye from Amy the Pooh Detective. Until next time, it's Jen the Magical Mapper saying goodbye. And Amy the Poop Detective saying goodbye, 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 goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.